football, baseball, basketball, anything sports. Auburn's 91.1 FM WEGL presents the scoreboard with your co-hosts, Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. Your calls are welcomed at 334-844-9345 or follow them on Twitter at Jacob underscore Hillman 3 or at Bay underscore Marks. Now, let's take a look at the scoreboard with Bay and Jacob. Welcome to today's episode of The Scoreboard. Bay and I are both back in Helena, so we're going to be recording on the Wednesday before, but releasing this podcast on Thursday, kind of in coordination with opening day, Auburn baseball series against Arkansas, and the Final Four, of course, on Saturday. So it's a rainy day on the plains on Wednesday. How are you doing today, Bay? Trying to stay positive, like you said, with this rain, Um, you know, Rain's always a downer. You know that more than anybody because <laughs> you are the grandpa. You do like to talk about the weather, but I'm doing good sticking in there. I'm excited that we finally have a Final Four um, set up, and like you said, baseball is in full swing, and you know it's just a very exciting time of the year. March is one of the best months of the year. It's coming to an end, but April seems to be promising with all these sports coming up, and uh, yeah, I'm ready to talk some Final Four today. It's funny. You mentioned how I always know about the weather. I saw a tweet today about how someone said, all my friends that are golfers could tell you the exact temperature and could tell you if it's going to rain 11 Saturdays That's from right. now. And it's true. Well, you it, haven't played in a while. I, I played two weeks ago on our first, on our second Wednesday on that Wednesday. Yes. Didn't keep score because didn't want to see how that went. I think I would have shot about 90, which that's below average for me. But I'm going to get back into it. As soon as this last cold snap's done, I'm back into it. But let's get back into the NCAA tournament. Start with Sweet 16 action, kind of what we took away from that. Move into the Elite Eight, and then we're going to preview the Final Four. And Beta Sweet 16, it was a pretty exciting one on Sunday, specifically with Alabama. But then Saturday, we're going to go in chronological order. I was wrong. I, I was just first game. Loyal, I picked them to go to the Final Four. Didn't happen. I'm with you on that one. I think on the show, the reason that we kind of both picked them was just the fact that, you know, March Madness and let the Cinderella dust continue to fall. And. Loyola Chicago did not show up like they had been. I mean, they weren't shooting the ball well, and Oregon State just continued to prove people wrong, being a 12 seed in the Pac-12 champion. I mean, they won the game 65-58. Uh, their leading scorer was Ethan Thompson, who had 22. Cameron Cutwig only had 14 points, didn't get as much production out of him as Loyola probably wanted, and Loyola and Sister Jean got sent home early, which was kind of sad to see. Yeah, and I know that early in the game, it was, I mean, the teams were on pace to score like literally like 20 points in the game. Yeah. And I think that that slow start really affected Loyola's offense because defensively they played the, – the game was to their advantage. That's how they want to play defensively. But I think on the offensive end, that's where they started to struggle was they just didn't really know how to get in that rhythm in that pace that they were playing at against Oregon State. And I think that's that's kind of what Oregon State showed in the Elite Eight against Houston when they when they really came back and they were they were strong there. They, they lost to Houston, but – I don't know. I, I think Loyola would have had a better chance if they had maybe not played as slow as they did. And we knew coming into this game that you know these two teams weren't some of the better offensive teams in the tournament. Obviously, like you said, they weren't on pace to score a lot of points in the early portion of the game. I mean, you look at Loyola Chicago, they shot 21% from the three-point line. Oregon State shot 38.5, so just about an average shooting percentage behind the stripe. But, I mean, we weren't expecting too many fireworks out of this game. Wasn't really a snooze fest, but in the end, Oregon State down the stretch just made the more veteran plays and 
kind of sealed the deal because Loyola, the Ramblers, did make a late game push. Regardless, Oregon State did move on. So it was a 12 seed in the Elite Eight, which is something that's very rare to see. Moving on to Baylor and Villanova. Baylor won by 11, and I mean, it's hard to say much other than, yeah, Baylor's freaking good. Oh my gosh, yes. You mean, they they proved why they're the one seed. I mean, Villanova was playing great for a five seed, even without their best player from the season. Baylor ended up winning 62-51, to 51, and like I said, Villanova was a team that, coming into the tournament, especially on our show, I didn't really give them a lot of credit, and none of my brackets, I really gave them a big chance either. I mean... I think they had a few COVID issues this year, which was another reason why I didn't give them a lot of credit. But like I said, they only shot 17% behind the three-point line, and that's not going to get it done against one of the better defensive teams in the nation. No, especially when you're Villanova, who likes to shoot a lot of threes. So when you're missing a lot of those shots, it's going to be tough, especially against Baylor, who we're obviously going to get to talk about a lot more in the next few minutes. But they're such a great team. I think a big thing, too, in this game was a lot of paint points because early on in the game, that's what you really saw was a lot of it being battled down low, battling for rebounds. And I think that was a theme that we saw throughout the entire game to push the Elite Eight. And like you said, in the end, Baylor came out victorious. And I think that um, they were, I think they kind of had a chip on their shoulder because I think they saw that Illinois was falling. I mean, Illinois had already fell. And then they saw that Michigan was going up against a red hot UCLA team as well. So I think a big thing for them was this they wanted to kind of uphold that number one seed um, criteria and what they're used to playing. Oh, so close. We almost had a 15 seed in the Elite Eight. They should have been in the Elite Eight. And, man, they led the whole game pretty yeah. much. And Arkansas, we, we saw they showed us why they were such a good team and such a daunted team in the SEC this whole year. And why? I mean, I think they, I think they gave Baylor a little bit of trouble in the Elite Eight. We'll get to that in a minute. But, but yeah, Oral Roberts, Max Avnis, credit to them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oral Roberts from the first round of the tournament to now, I mean, they get up to play Arkansas, who's one of the better teams in the SEC this year. Went to the semifinals of the SEC tournament, and they had them on the ropes. And then Arkansas, I mean, Musselman just had his team where he needed them there late in the game. Obviously, the news coming out today, which we'll get into after we talk about them playing Baylor, but Sills entering the transfer portal. Um, I think that's going to be big for them down the stretch. He only had two points in the end with 28 minutes played. They didn't really have as much bench production. They only had six bench points, so that might have been a reason why they were behind the entire game. But all in all, they made the plays that they needed late, and Oral Roberts as a 15 seed in their Cinderella team goes home. Man, I, after seeing the dance moves from Eric Musselman and the rest of those coaches for the COVID testing, I was really hoping for the Oral Roberts upset. I'll be honest. It, Some people said they deserved to lose after <laughs> seeing those dance moves. It, it was cringeworthy. Moving on to the last week's 16 matchup of Saturday, Houston over Syracuse, and it wasn't particularly close. Syracuse couldn't score. See, I think the spread on this game was like either five or six, and Syracuse couldn't even cover that. I mean, and we thought Syracuse was going to be a dark horse team after seeing how they had played in the first two rounds, especially taking down um, a three seed in West Virginia. I mean, a lot of people picked them to win this game. I know I did. And Houston was that two seed that really in the first two games of this tournament showed that they were a weaker two seed, and I think a lot of people doubted them. And I think they took that personally, and I mean, they came out and they were firing on all cylinders. It was it was crazy. 28% from the field for Syracuse, and, and that's not just to discredit Syracuse, but to credit Houston's defense, because th- that is their strong suit. They're a good defensive team, and that's why they're in the Final Four now. We'll talk about their Elite Eight game in a few minutes, but yeah, Buddy Bayheim only scoring 12 points on one for nine from three. You can't you can't win with that performance. Yeah, I think they were leaning on Buddy to have a big performance. He didn't show up, which he's been a great value to that program, and he means a lot to it, obviously, with his dad being the head coach and stuff. So 
Uh, I think it was very emotional for the Big Orange to lose and lose that that game. But I mean, every two years they're back making that run. Right. So just look for them in two years and they'll be back. Another team that all you can say is they're really good is Gonzaga. I don't even know how to describe them besides perfect, like you mentioned last yeah. week. I mean, they haven't lost a game, and I guess another word to describe them would be mustache because that <laughs> seems to become a theme with them right now too. Drew Timmy, I mean, I, I love it because it's it's when teams like this that you really like Gonzaga. Yeah, if you're a big basketball fan, you know about them. Mm-hmm. But if you're not a big basketball fan. You're not going to think of Gonzaga when you think of basketball teams. No, and it's only their second Final Four ever that we'll get into later as well. Because I just love what Drew Timmy's doing, how he's kind of he's really, really using that to his advantage, kind of build a brand. Because you got Jalen Suggs as well on that team. You got Gisbert. It you, you really want to separate yourselves as individual players among the team. Because, like I said, whenever you think of basketball, you think of Duke, North Carolina, Kentucky. None of them even made the tournament this year. Gonzaga was a team that was undefeated. When people actually watched them, were like, "Okay, this isn't the typical Gonzaga team that's going to get beaten the Sweet 16. This team is really good, and they have shown that in the tournament so far." And like I said, just individually, like I love what all these players have done. Like Nimbard in this Creighton game, he was the leading scorer with 17, or he wasn't the leading scorer, but he was kind of the leading guy at eight assists with 17 points. That's insane. Timmy was the leading scorer with 22. But it's just one of those things where even when Jalen Suggs only has nine points and turns the ball over six times, they still win by 18 points. I was about to say, I think what the crazy thing is, is they have six guys come in off the bench and only two of them score for a total of 10 points. <laughs> so it's really just that starting five that has stayed healthy, knock on wood, has played well together, and they almost seem like they know where each other's going to be at the perfect time. They play perfectly together. They are a well-old machine. I mean, and we were talking about it on the show before Alabama lost, obviously. I looked at you and I said, I don't see anybody but maybe Gonzaga beating Bama just because of how good they are. Obviously, that doesn't that didn't happen. It doesn't but, apply now. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. point being, Gonzaga is a Gonzaga is a very good team. They showed it against Creighton. I mean, Creighton coming in as a five seed. I know that they had a lot of drama within the recent few weeks with their coach, and um, I mean, it showed they lost by nearly twenty. But regardless, Gonzaga is just continuing to just dominate through their region. Looking at Michigan and Florida State, I mean, it's crazy what. Michigan turned into after this win because we kind of thought Florida State is that team. All right, they might give them some trouble, and they really didn't. I think that was a game that you had picked Florida State on the show, and yeah. rightfully so because I was le- I was kind of on the edge of who I was going to pick. Um, Michigan, like you said, ended up winning seventy six to fifty eight. Wagner had thirteen points, ten rebounds, and five assists. I think he had a really big impact on that game. He had a larger role in the next game they played down the stretch as well, which we'll get into. But <laughs> regardless, this was a Florida State team that me and Jacob were talking about. Loved the slow pace of game, really wanted to slow it down. And early they kept it close. It was just throughout the game, I think Michigan's talent just kind of wore on them. Moving on to the game. Our favorite game of the tournament. Yeah, so it's definitely our favorite game of the tournament. I mean, it was one of the best games in the tournament oh, no, until it was overtime. Game until yeah. the overtime, yeah. I mean, a 10-point victory for UCLA over Alabama. I mean, UCLA led by 11 and a half time. They had that lead until the very end, and Alabama, they were going back and forth at the end of the regulation, missed free throws, and then a buzzer beater from Alex Reese to send it to overtime. I mean, that that game was just ballistic. Yeah, and I mean, I think Mick Cronin really did have a good defensive game plan. You look at the box score, you look at how Alabama performed, 
I mean, Herb Jones had eight points. I mean, granted, he did have nine rebounds, but eight points overall, that's way below his normal offensive production this year. Keon Ellis had 10, and then John Petty had 16. Outside of that, you really just have Quinterly off the bench with 20, and everybody else has single digits. And then you look at UCLA, all starters, all five starters are in double digits, with Singleton coming off the bench with 15 points. And now, remember, Juzang fouled out, yeah. who's been one of their better players all year, is the best player in their Elite Eight game. And down the stretch, he fouled out, and they had to go without him. And yet, like you mentioned, in overtime, they withstand Alabama. They continue to make shots while Alabama struggled, and they ended up winning by 10. And I'm going to give him credit. If it was his only basket of the game so far at that point, Alex Reese's buzzer beater was awesome. That was a cool moment. Yeah. And I'll give him that. I mean, it was probably the moment of the tournament if Alabama wins that game. Absolutely. And it's still going to be one of the best moments of the tournament, even with the 10-point loss. But, yeah, I mean, you still – when you look at this game, all you got to look at is that free throw percentage. 11 for 25. Absolutely. It was a worse performance by a team shooting free throws when they shoot more than 25 since I think the stat was, I think it was like 2016, the last time a team did that poorly. Yeah, and the thing is, is that obviously those are free. I mean, that's it's uh, in the name. in the name of the game. <laughs> But the fact that Alabama comes that far just for it to come up and be something so simple as free throws, a team that's been one of the better offensive teams in the nation this year, it is absolutely heartbreaking as much as we hate to admit it. And the fact that Alabama's run comes short is is kind of shocking because UCLA was in the first four game and Alabama loses in the Sweet 16 and can't advance to the Elite Eight. So it's tough for the Crimson Tide, obviously. Yeah, and, and they were hey, they were clearly the best team in the SEC this year. As, I mean... It's one of those things where you expect the SEC to put up a little bit of a better showing. Arkansas, yeah, they made it to the Elite Eight, but the rest of the SEC, I, I just I wasn't too impressed with. I mean, you had Florida lose to Oral Roberts. You had LSU. They they put up a good fight against Michigan. I'm not, I'm not going to discredit them for that. But, I mean, Tennessee... No, lost Oregon State. Florida should have lost in the first round of Virginia Tech. It's one of those things where the SEC, this was not their year. Alabama was impressive, and I'm not discrediting them because the SEC was weak. I think that they would have had a good chance to win it all, uh, win the SEC in any year So with this team. So it's not really about Alabama, oh, they got past an easy SEC schedule. It's more just the SEC needs to bounce back next year. Well, I think it's funny because last year and the year before, we talked about how strong the SEC was in uh, seeding. Like when Auburn went to the Final Four, how many teams were in the big dance? And then last year before the coronavirus struck, how many teams we were talking about the SEC was going to put into the tournament as well. So I think a big thing was also just as crazy that it can change that quick in one year from another. I mean, Kentucky was a, the mid part of the SEC towards the bottom part, and they're normally towards the top. I don't know. Just in general, like you said, the SEC, very much of a down year and definitely needs to bounce back next year. Looking to the final Sweet 16 matchup of the tournament, it was a Pac-12 battle between USC and Oregon. This was just a you know, rub it in my face since I told everyone that the Pac-12 wasn't going to have anyone pass <laughs> the round of 32, and here we are with the Pac-12 matchup in the Sweet 16. USC and Oregon, and USC put it on Oregon. Yeah, and Oregon obviously playing one less game at this point so far than USC because of coronavirus procedures and whatnot for the Oregon team in their first game against VCU. Um, and USC, obviously a team, like we said, came in as a sixth seed. People really weren't thinking too much of them, and they ended up putting a beating on beat them by 1482-68 in that Pac-12 showdown. Yeah, and usually you expect it to be the Mobley twins 
who get it done for USC, but it was Tajidi and Isaiah White who scored 42 combined points in this game. That's more than half of the points for USC. The Mobley Twins scored 23 respectively, and they grabbed 14 rebounds combined. But it was one of those things where usually they're the ones scoring the points. See, and let's let's be honest. Is the real loser, was the real loser of this game the one that loses the Sweet 16 matchup, or the one to advance and get their brains beat in by Gonzaga? Yeah, and you know we're about to get into that because <laughs> that, that's the thing. This they already eight, knew who they were playing, and it's kind of the thing is this Elite Eight kind of felt like we knew exactly what was going to happen, and it took until the last game for everyone to be proven wrong. Exactly. So looking at Monday. Houston, Oregon State. There was no way Oregon State was going to keep up that run. And for a while, it looked like it wasn't even going to be close. But they fought back, and then they lost by six to Houston. Well, a big thing was in the first half at halftime, Houston had doubled the score of Oregon State. It was 34-17 at halftime. Oregon State making some halftime adjustments. Come out and outscore the Cougars in the second half by 11. They still ended up losing by six points. And, again, Houston, a two-seed that nobody really was um, saying was strong, a weak two-seed. They come out and they prove people wrong. They punch their ticket to the Final Four. Their leading scorer was Sasser with 20 points, followed by Grimes and Giroux with 18 and 10 respectively. I mean, Houston was really going up and down the floor, which is really how they played against Syracuse. I think a big thing with them against Syracuse was Syracuse really likes to slow it down and make people suffocate in their 2-3 zone. But when Houston was moving the ball before in their Elite 8 and Sweet 16 matchup, it really looked like there wasn't a lot of teams in the nation that could push the ball with them. So I think that was a difference maker towards the end of the game was they were able to control the pace and Oregon State was kind of just really playing catch up. Yeah, and I also think another big factor, offensive rebounds, 19-7 to in favor of Houston. And you're not going to get it done when you give up that many second chance points because, you know, if you look at the box score, you think, oh, Oregon State shot 46.8% and Houston shot 32.3%. How they lose by six? And it's exactly that. Exactly. It's just that Houston got so many second chance points and so many opportunities that there's just no way they were going to lose well, Oregon it. State also blew it at the free throw line. Yeah. They were 11 of 20, I believe. So. Yeah, 11 of 20, and then Houston was 16 for 24. Here's the thing. If you're an underseeded team like Oregon State was, you can't be missing free throws, and you cannot give up offensive rebounds like that. You also can't lose a turnover battle, which they only lost by two, but... I think they, were, I think they just ran out of magic dust. Exactly. I, I think March, they got on a roll, and... I think Pac-12 tournament time, they were hitting their stride. First two rounds, they were really hitting their stride. Then it comes to the Sweet 16 and Elite Eight, and I think they just started running out of gas, and it was it showed against Houston. To the second Elite Eight matchup of Monday, Baylor defeating Arkansas 81-72, to an old, an old SWC matchup between the two. I like as, that reference. As they've, played, they've played a lot, yeah. and they met each other in the Elite Eight, and as we would expect, Baylor advances to the Final Four. Well, Baylor started out hot. I mean, they got a really good lead early, and I think they kind of gave it up. They were only up by eight at halftime, and they only outscored Arkansas by one in the second half. But, again, Davion Mitchell, with his defense, only scoring 12 points, but he still had six assists, played great defense. And then you have Teague, who's been a great player all year, part of that big three with um, with Butler as well. He had 22 points, and Butler following up the rear with 14. And, I mean... Baylor, we obviously all predicted for them to win this region. Now, did it come with struggles? Not so much. I mean, maybe here and there a stretch or two in some of their games. But I think we really saw in this game they're kind of starting to make sure they're getting all their wrinkles out before the Final Four. Yeah, and it's funny. When you watch Teague score 22 points, you wonder how he does it because of 
my goodness, that hitch in his shot. I mean, it yeah. looks like Charles Barkley's golf swing. Somebody tweeted, they said, is this real? Yeah. <laughs> like, so he, is he kidding with us? He's th- he's th- he went three for seven from three, which is an extremely respectable line. When you watch him shoot, you think, there's no way this guy makes a single three-pointer ever. And sure enough, he does. And, like, when you got Flagler coming off the bench and and Mayer, it's like, what are you what do you do against this team? I, right. I, I that's kind of what I think about because all right, Gonzaga, yes, they're a powerhouse, but I feel like there are ways. I feel like there's more ways to slow them down than Baylor, just because Baylor is so they're so just top notch and they're so physical and defensive minded that it turns into great offense. Whereas Gonzaga, if you actually slow down their offense and you don't turn the ball over, you got a pretty good chance. And really, to slow down the offense of Gonzaga, I'm not sure exactly what you can do. It's all about really forcing their bench to do something. I mean, I don't know. I just, I'm kind of starting to get into the preview a little bit. I really like Baylor. That's I'll say that much before we preview these games. Yeah, Baylor and Gonzaga, we, it's the matchup we all deserve, which we'll get into that in a minute, like Jacob said. But analysis being that Baylor, I mean, if they're not having a good offensive day, I think that's kind of the only way you beat them. Their defense is going to be on regardless. They've played great defense so far. The numbers don't really show up, but the eye test says so. Um, I mean, I really think it comes down to the big three of Teague, Mitchell, and Butler. If you can get two of three of those guys to not score double digits, you're in for a really good day because you're probably going to win that matchup because Vital's not really going to score for you. Thama's not really going to score for you. And you only have so many options coming off the bench because they only rotate about seven or eight guys. I think that's what's going to have to happen in the national championship game. But again, Getting ahead of myself, and we'll move to the other side. The Tuesdays, Elite Eight matchups. First game, as you'd expect, Gonzaga blows out USC. What was the takeaway there? Again, just Gonzaga being the most dominant team in the tournament, having an easy run. I mean, they won by 19. USC, again, a team that comes from the Pac-12. A lot of people were counting out just running out of magic against the number one overall seed. They moved to 30-0. and uh, And, I mean, Suggs bounces back with a double-double, 18-10. and I think the big thing here is Gonzaga not overseeing an opponent, but again, crafting themselves when they do have a head-to-head clash in the Final Four. Moving on to the game of the Elite Eight. UCLA by two over Michigan. I say it's the game of the Elite Eight. It was kind of boring leading up until the final until the final few minutes because 51-49, to 100 total points in an Elite Eight game. Not what you expect. It was almost like that. I think it was the UConn National Championship game a few years ago. I forget who they played in that game. It might have been Michigan. But that game was like 24 to 14 at halftime or something like that. Yeah, Juzang coming back from being fouled out in the Sweet 16 drops 28 points. He only has two rebounds. But, again, that just shows how valuable he is because their bench, zero points. (laughs) No points. 49 total points from the starters, and only two of them are in double-doubles. It's him and Campbell, two of the guards, 28 and 11 respectively. And everybody else scored four points. And then you look at Michigan – Obviously not the best offensive production, only one player in double figures, that being Dickinson, who's obviously the highlight of their team. Um, I think a big thing, too, is also you look towards the end of the game, and Michigan grabbed the lead with just a few minutes left. UCLA got it right back, and somebody tweeted, I I don't know if it was him or not, it might have been Justin Ferguson, or it was just somebody else I saw on Twitter. No, it wasn't him, it was was somebody else, I'm I'm blanking on their name, but they said... Um, Michigan has no timeouts, and they have the ball, and Juwan Howard and Jalen Rose are in the building gritting their teeth. <laughs> so, I, I don't know. It, it came down to the fact that Juwan Howard and Michigan had their chance. Um, I believe it was Wagner who shot a three-point shot 
with, I believe it was like se- several seconds left, yeah. a lot of time left on the clock, missed it, and then when Michigan got the ball back down in their own basket, draws up a play. Um, I assume it was intended for him. I didn't see anybody else open on the play, and he misses a three ball in a wing that's contested. So with half a second left, which is all you can really ask for, I don't know. See, and here, here's the thing. I think Dickinson needed more shots. Yeah. Shooting, he's going. He went five for ten from the field. You know, you look at Juzang, who was eleven for nineteen, scored twenty-eight. Those two guys should be going at it all game long, but instead they kept giving it to Wagner and one for ten. Yeah. You and, know, I'm I'm gonna say it. That play shouldn't have gone to Wagner. No, it shouldn't. It should have gone to Dickinson. Dickinson was throwing the ball in, but he's seven foot, seven foot one, and I believe UCLA didn't really have anybody else on the floor that compared to that height, maybe six ten. Throw it to him. Yeah. I mean, if he's going to get up there and dunk the ball, just give him a tip in with half a second left. That's going to tie the game, send it to overtime. Absolutely. And and here's the thing. You, you hate that for a guy like Dixon. I think Dixon's a freshman, though, so he, he's going to be back. But, you know, a guy like Wagner, he's he's a great player. He's only a sophomore. But it, it's one of those things where it's not like this has been a consistent theme throughout the years. It's just one of those things. You get to March, and things happen. Yeah. And don't forget, UCLA going in from the play-in game to the Final Four, I believe... Um, VCU did it. Yeah. I, I think it was the first year, of the, the first board VCU did it. Yeah. And I don't know if any other team has done that since, but... And we talk, did we not talk about on the radio show that the Michigan State-UCLA winner might be dangerous in the tournament? Yeah, and, and here's the thing, we expected... We didn't we, think they'd be this dangerous, though. Or even this team. Yeah, exactly. we were all We were all like, all right. We were all on Tom Izzo and the Spartans. January, February... Mick Cronin, that's what we're going to call it now, because UCLA is in the Final Four, which we're going to get into now, Saturday, at 4.14 Central Time, Baylor and Houston tip off on CBS for the Final Four in Lucas Oil Stadium. I'm sad because, I'm going to say it, this is the first Final Four since the Tide Drone double dribble, and it is two <laughs> years ago today, Wednesday, March 31st of 2021, that Auburn went to the Final Four, so... I'm just going to say that, a little bit of sentiment, but regardless. It, it, it was sad to see all the memories pop up. I mean, it wasn't sad, but it was it was just a, you know, like a dang. You're like, like dang, dang that, that happened. Yeah, from two years ago. But anyway, the Battle of Texas, Baylor and Houston, a one seed versus a two seed. I think this is more interesting than people are going to make it out to be. I think a lot of people are looking ahead to the national championship. I mean, I'm looking for the spread on this game. I don't see it right now. Baylor minus five. five. Okay, yeah. yeah. Baylor minus five. I'm going to take Baylor in this game, obviously, just because, spoiler alert, in the bracket that I have left, I have them winning the national championship. Now, having said that, I can see either them or Gonzaga winning mm-hmm. it. I don't know. But this game particularly, I think the key to look for is Houston's fast-paced offense against a slow Baylor team on defense. Now, when Baylor gets on offense, they do like to play fast or they can play sets. But Houston, I think their strength is playing the ball fast, pushing the ball before, and Baylor's uh, strength is slowing that ball down. Look for that in the game. I think Baylor wins, and I think Baylor covers. Yeah, I, I really like Baylor in this game. I also, I'll look at the over-under, too. I think it's going to be a slugfest, 134.5. I don't like that number at all because I think it'll be right around that. Like I think it'll be about 65-64 game. I think it's going to be close. I, I would Houston, you bet the under? I would definitely bet the under. I, I think I would bet the under in this game. Because I, I don't like, I, I just don't like either of these teams' offenses to be explosive. Like, Baylor's offense is great, but it comes from their defense. And when it's going to be a slugfest, like I think it'll be on Saturday, I don't see them going on any crazy runs, which is why I think it'll be close. I'm not as confident about saying Houston's going to lose by a single possession, but I just think the nature of the game will lead to that. Yeah. I think I think Baylor, I think that's a great line, minus five. But 
I just think the way the game plays, I think Houston will keep it close until the very end, and they'll be within a possession. I agree. I think it's just I think it comes down to the guards for Baylor. I think it's going to come down to Davion Mitchell, Jared Butler. I think Vital can play a crucial role down in the paint towards the end of the game and grab a few key rebounds. I think Baylor just has a few key possessions towards the end of the game that puts him up by probably eight or nine from the free throw line. Looking at the nightcap, a West Coast showdown at 7.34 p.m. Central on CBS. Gonzaga and UCLA, one team we knew was going to be there. The other team, I mean, no. No, Yeah, you would have made a lot of money betting on this team at the beginning of the tournament. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having to play the extra game and going up against Against a, you know, I won't say it was the strongest road, but having to beat Michigan State, having to beat Alabama and Michigan. And a six-seed in BYU. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not the easiest road in the world. It's not at all. So, here we are. UCLA, 14-point dogs to the Bulldogs of Gonzaga. I think that's, I mean, I don't know statistically. That's got to be one of the biggest lines in the Final Four history. Yeah, ESPN's matchup predictor has it as an 89% chance for the Gonzaga Bulldogs to win this matchup. That's spot on. I don't see this not going Gonzaga's way, really. Um, There's been talks about Gonzaga ranking up within some of the best teams of all time. Now, you also could argue that the last undefeated team to go to the Final Four that did lose in the Final Four was Kentucky against a team that a lot of people were doubting in Wisconsin. Again, this Wisconsin team doesn't compare to this UCLA team. I think that team was a lot more talented, to be honest with you. But anyways, I just... Point being, Gonzaga has to keep their guard up and make sure that they get business done to move on to the national championship game. But again, I see Gonzaga winning this game. They're white hot. I mean, nobody has been able to touch them. They're going to win this game again by double digits. Yeah, I, I I see the same thing happening. And it's just one of those things where you got to keep doing what you're doing. As you said, there's no reason to go in and do anything, especially against this UCLA team like and it's not to discredit them, but, I mean, Gonzaga is just way more talented. I do think Cronin will have a really good game plan. True. He had a great game plan against Alabama. Obviously, a great game plan against Michigan, holding him under 50 points. I mean, Cronin has definitely done his work with his squad. It's just Gonzaga is just obviously the best team in the nation, one of probably the best teams ever. That's going to be them going to the national championship. So that leads us to what our national championship is, Baylor and Gonzaga. I'm not sure the exact time, probably be Seven, it'll be eight o'clock. It will be on, on CBS Monday, on Monday, yes. as the NCAA likes to do. And you know, I don't really know how I feel. And you know, what's going to be interesting is what the line will be because this is just the you know, the collision course we've been on is Baylor Gonzaga the whole year, they've been worn into the whole year. And dude, I mean, I would imagine the line's going to be at Gonzaga minus five, minus four and a half, just because of the way they played, unless, unless they go and have to make a huge comeback against UCLA, I think Gonzaga will be favored by five points. Bet the over. Um, yeah. <laughs> this game will be pushed. I kind of like that because unless it's some crazy number. Like, if it's a crazy yeah. number, then no. But I, I think it'll be a lot of points, and I don't want to hype it up too much because it seems like we always do that with games, and then there's not it. Yeah. But I don't see how this game couldn't live up to the hype. Yeah, and... I'm knocking on wood because I pray that it stays up to the, or it stays as hyped up as people have said it's going to be. And I mean, with the year that we've had in this past year, with having last March canceled, college basketball deserves a great national championship game in Indianapolis within the NCAA's bubble. I think Gonzaga and Baylor really will give us that game. I think this game, obviously, bet the over. I think it's going to be a high-scoring game. I think. 
Baylor might throw that defense out the window late in the game and just say we need to score because I think Gonzaga's offense is more powerful than their defense. I'll just say that. Down the stretch, I really couldn't tell you who's going to win this game. My bracket says Baylor, but my heart says Gonzaga. I really don't know. It's kind of a coin flip. Give me your pick and give me your Final Four MVP. You know what? I'll say that it's going to be Baylor, and I say Davion Mitchell <laughs> comes up and wins the MVP. I love it. I love it from the heart. But I'm, I'm going to go with my brain. <laughs> Here's the thing. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. My bracket does say Baylor, but the way Gonzaga's been playing, dude, like, you cannot bet against that. No. But for some reason, I'm like, I picked Baylor for a reason. I, I love Baylor. I do. And I want to pick them. But I'm going with Gonzaga. And the handlebar. Yes. Hey, that's hey. look. I shaved my face the except for just the mustache in honor of that. The, the handlebar is getting that Final Four MVP. And I'm going to be disappointed whenever Jalen Suggs wins it. Yes, because, well... You know, there's been so much we were robbed of with Jalen Suggs. Well, yeah, and obviously a matchup with him and Shreve Cooper would have been nice, too, back when Auburn... Hey, either way, Auburn will not be transitive property national champions because Auburn did not beat Baylor or Gonzaga, and Baylor got beat by Kansas. I don't think Auburn beat anybody that beat Kansas. <laughs> and I don't think they beat... Who beat Baylor in the Big 12 tournament? Was it Texas? It might have been. I think it was Texas, and that that's actually possible. I'm sure we could find a loophole with Abilene Christian. <laughs> <laughs> and some what's some mid major team that Auburn's played this year, like Appalachian State or Absolutely. Texas Southern. Absolutely. That's gonna do it for our NCAA tournament talk. Next Thursday we'll recap the final four and how that went down. Hopefully we're talking about how great of a national championship was. But guess what? When March Madness ends, you know what that shifts to? Oh yeah. Baseball season. Major League Baseball opening day is tomorrow as we're recording this on Thursday when we usually be Doing our show. And that is not an April's Fool joke. No, it's, it's not. It's actually starting on time this year. See, gosh, that that whole mess last year was something just with Domino, Manfred. Domino, 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 and then Manfred just screws it all up. But hey, here we are, one day away, ready to go. And it's hard to know what to expect for baseball on an opening day, and you should never overreact to an opening day game because they really mean nothing. We saw what happened with the Nationals two years ago when they were in no position to win in May, but they won the whole thing. So, preview our own teams first. Let's look at the Red Sox. Do not expect anything out of Boston. <laughs> Having said that, we will win on opening day. We're playing Baltimore. So that that is a well. Don't don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> I don't care how bad we are. If we don't win against the Orioles on opening day, something's wrong. We have Nathan Eovaldi pitching. We have Alex Cora back. I know that was a big thing during the offseason. Yeah. Um, he did not cheat. I mean, he was involved in it, but <laughs> he's back. I think that's a big thing, too, because Boston's team really does like him. Um, something I would definitely look out for is definitely Eduardo Rodriguez. He's back. He's fully healthy. He was going to be, or he's not healthy because he was going to be the opening day starter, but I believe he had some health issues, so he's getting pushed back. But he's had a very promising offseason. He's going to be somebody that if Boston even makes a playoff push and is above 500, it will be because of that guy, especially with Chris Hale still coming back from injury and whatnot. So look for him, but opening day, I see the Red Sox winning against Eovaldi. They're pitching John Means for the Orioles. Again, season-wise, I don't expect a lot out of Boston. I think they're going to tank and finish under 500. I guess you pick them to finish fourth in the AL East. Yes, with Baltimore being uh, behind them now. One through three is kind of hard to tell. Tampa Bay coming off that World Series, but getting rid of uh, their best pitcher, obviously. That was a big controversy back in November that we talked about. Um, 
I, I don't know. I'm. I, it tastes like vinegar in my mouth to say this, but I think New York wins a division, and I think it's followed by Tampa Bay and then uh, the Blue Jays. I think that Tampa Bay and Toronto are going to have a battle for that for a wild card spot. Yeah. I don't think both of them will get it, but I do think that they'll both be in a very heated battle. Like, I mean, you know, it'd be awesome a one day playoff. Uh, you know, a play-in game, have yeah. a game 163. I would love to see that between those two teams. I could agree. I mean, AL East is obviously the strongest division in the American League every year, at least. Maybe yeah. even all of baseball. Yeah. But um, I agree. I think one through three is just kind of really hard to predict. Yankees, obviously, you're going to put them at number one. I know Aaron Boone has had some health concerns in the offseason, so um, it'll be a while before he comes back and stuff. But Yankees will probably finish first, and then after that, it's going to be harder to tell. Looking at my Bravos. I expect a lot from them, as I should, because they were so close. They were. They, so close. They let me down. I, I picked them to go to the World Series. I honestly think they let the whole country down. No one wants the Dodgers to win. But yeah. when, you look, when, you, when you look at this team this year, it is a lot of the same. You're going to have Soroka coming back. He, he's throwing already. Max Fried is the opening day starter. I, I, I'd I be hope, excited about that. Yeah, I hope that we can get back to, is it Fried or is it Soroka being the ace? But... No matter what, I like what the Braves show on the offensive end, as you should. Acuna, Freeman, all these. Ozuna's back. Now, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with him because of the designated hitter not being a thing of the National League this season. And, per, you know, selfishly, as a Braves fan, I would love to have a designated hitter just for him because he is probably one of the worst gloves in baseball. Yeah. And I think he's won a gold glove, actually. Yeah. But, but lately, the last few years, not at all. Nate Marquez is retired, but Christian Pache, if he's not starting on tomorrow, I'm going to lose it on Brian Snicker. I, I I just don't see how you can't stop that young guy. Because here's the thing. That's what the Braves are built around right now. Yes, Freddie Freeman is the centerpiece, but surrounding him are all these young stars that are just exciting and fun to watch. Austin Riley. Which is why I thought they'd win the World Series last year. I mean, it was just one of those things that you have all the pieces and then it fell apart. This year, in the NL East, I'm not sure they're going to win it. But they're going to get a wild card spot at the very least. And I think it'll be a tightly contested division because, I mean, the Mets, they finally made good moves. Phillies, Bryce Harper, again, who knows? You never know. And then, of course, the Nationals, you never count them out. You can count out the Marlins. That's fifth place. But those four teams, I really don't know how to rank them. I want to put, I'm going to go ahead and say the Braves, right? Are, I don't think they'll finish worse than second. But I don't want to pick them to win because I do really like what the Mets did. And as I said, the Nationals and the Phillies, like, you can't really bet against them at all because it's just one of those things where. Both of them have all the key pieces. I mean, the Nationals won the World Series two years ago. The Phillies have Bryce Harper, and they're starting to build around him. So I don't want to say, oh, this team's overrated, and they're not going to do what is expected of them, just because I don't know what to expect. Because I do feel like you know, last year I don't even think the Phillies or Nationals were necessarily that good. They should have been, but they weren't. And, of course, it was a weird season, weird environment for everything. It's, it's hard to really use last season as a gauge. That being said, I'm going to pick the Braves finish second in the division, and I think that the Mets will win it. I think it's pretty modest. I think it's a good a good starting point. I think I think after the first month of the season, you'll really get to see where Atlanta's at. Um, 
I definitely see them making a playoff push again this year. Yeah, and and even just even as a wild card team, I still expect them to make a push. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, and like you said, I'm still on the high horse of the fact that I don't see a lot of teams in the National League being better than Atlanta when their young core is playing great with their veteran leadership and Freddie Freeman and company. And like I said, last year, they let me down. Don't let me down this year. It's a new year, new Atlanta, kind of the same Atlanta. But point being, the Braves, I really do think they'll make a good playoff push this year. Um, yeah, and, and looking at looking at what concerns me, it is the pitching. And it's not really like, oh, I think that as a whole the pitching will be bad. I'm just worried about, you know. Well, Atlanta did miss out on Bauer. I yeah. think they really wanted just that, that really good starter. And I didn't, nec- I didn't necessarily think Bauer, it had to be Bauer, but get somebody, yeah. and they didn't. He just so happened to go to the team that had just won the World Series and beat Atlanta out of the playoffs. Yeah, don't remind me. I, I don't know. I'm worried about performances specifically. You can't be blown. Like, if you go to the bullpen and you pick the wrong guy, it's the guy who's having a bad night, blow a game. That's not what you want. Of course, the Braves' bullpen was great last season after a horrific 2019. So maybe I'm overreacting. Maybe I still have uh, PTSD from that season. But I really don't know. And then I haven't even mentioned Nancy Swanson. I think he – I remember at the beginning of last year, I really thought, okay, this guy could, like, really make some noise. And he didn't necessarily make that much noise, but I think this year he could. And that's what I'm saying is this this Braves lineup is dangerous. And I really don't see how that could be an issue this year. I say that, and surely they're all going to be terrible. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm okay with where – the lineup is, it's the pitching performances that concern me. I'm not concerned about the pitching as a unit, but it's just, all right, we're going to go throw. I think, who was it? I'm not sure. He might not be on the 40-man right now. It was uh, Chad Sabaka in spring training. Gave up like six runs with two outs Golly. the other day. And then the rest of the, they brought in two other guys, 12 total runs in the eighth inning. Golly. That's the thing that concerns me is like, a performance like that costs you. I will say, though, like spring training, like, it doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I would be, I'd be cautiously optimistic, but um, it, it's still just one of those things that is gonna stick yeah. in my head. If we put in Sabatka, I'd be like, hey, one thing about starting wrong. pitchers in the MLB. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I did, I do think I believe I saw the other day where Casey Mize is now in the starting rotation. He is. For the Tigers. He is. So that's big for Auburn. You have Casey Mize as a starter for the Tigers. I don't know where he is in the rotation, but he's a starter just him being yeah, in mean, that five man rotation only in two is years is crazy absolutely speaking or go ahead I was just saying say because he had to deal with those injuries too he did and I mean obviously it is very very rare I mean like point like oh 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 one percent that you go straight to the pros in baseball mm-hmm. like Jordan was asking me last week like uh, this girl she watches on YouTube her boyfriend got drafted by the Yankees and she's like he, is he not a professional I was like no he's technically professional but he doesn't play in the MLB so, point being, like, a lot of guys don't go straight to the pros. And the fact that he's done it in less than two years, and to be a starter, I mean, you don't always start out as, like, a reliever. Well, especially as a pitcher. That's, yeah. yeah, that's the whole thing. Yeah. Is like, as a pitcher, it's so developmental. Like, I mean, didn't Bryce Harper pretty much go straight to the league? He might have played a few yeah, minor games, but yeah. like, he went straight to the league. Yeah. And that's different for a fielder and, and a batter. As a pitcher, it's like, yeah. Well, and speaking of pitching matchups, I think one that I wanted to point out before we moved on here in a minute was just one pitching matchup on ESPN at 6.09 p.m. on opening day. Between the Mets and the Nationals, it's Jacob DeGrom and Max Scherzer. That's going to yeah. be a fun game to watch. Yeah, see, ESPN always has the quadruple header. Just sit in front of the TV tomorrow and watch some baseball. I mean, 
including people in that quadruple header, Garrett Cole, Clayton Kershaw, again, DeGrom and Scherzer, Granke, and Chris Bassett. I mean, you have a lot of great arms towing the rubber. Definitely look out for that. And then one thing I do want to point out before we move on to about Boston, I just remembered this will be the first year that Boston does not have any remaining members of the Killer Bees. Dang. Because Mookie Betts got traded, and then um, I believe Ben Attendee signed with the Royals, and then uh, Jackie Bradley Jr. moved on to Milwaukee. So, All right. Yeah. We're, we're going to make some preseason predictions right here, really, really quick ones. We're going to go with World Series, and then we're going to go with AL and AL MVPs. So okay. let's go with the World Series, the both teams, and who wins it. Obviously, as much as we both hate to say it, I'm, I'm sure your National League is the same as mine. It's Los Angeles. Absolutely. Dodgers just, I mean, they lo- they're still loaded. Still have Trevor Bauer coming off that World Series and how good they looked. I think the National League is theirs to lose. I don't see them having many weaknesses this year. I will say they have a crazy target on their back now. Oh, huge target. So they, they I don't think they're as dangerous in the postseason as they have been. Yeah. But still, regardless, Los Angeles, I mean, they're still a powerhouse in the National League. I definitely see them making the World Series. And I'm going to throw you a, a curveball here. If I, you pick the same team, I, because I'm going to throw you a curveball too, but if we're throwing the same curve. <laughs> you say at the same time? No, because I feel like you are picking a different team. Okay, I, I'm I'm picking between two teams to take the American League. One of them is New York, but my curveball is possibly Houston. Okay, okay. It's not the same team. Okay. Hoosiers. See, I'm I'm picking the White Sox against the against oh, okay. the Dodgers. And I think the Dodgers get it back to back. I think they. I think the Dodgers White get back to back still. Yeah. Because I think the White Sox are too young. But I think, as you said about the Braves last year, I think they're actually going to get it done and get to the World Series, and they're just not going to finish it off. And yeah. I think it'll be very similar to that Tampa Bay series last year. Well, I think. Well, I think New York gets to the World Series if obviously if it's not Houston, but I think that it's going to be kind of like y'all against the uh, Dodgers in the National League postseason last year, as they collapse. So, again, me and Jacob on the same page. Dodgers take the 2021 World Series title. Um, still more pain for our teams as we still try and grow. NL MVP. I think it's kind of obvious who we're picking here. I mean, I mean, yeah. But, I'm going to pick Tatis. Yeah, I was going to. Yeah, see, I'm going to pick him. I don't want to pick him, too, but it's like, I feel like. I mean, why wouldn't you? That's too easy. It's easy, but why wouldn't you? Yeah. He's, he's 20, what, 21, 22? Mm-hmm. He just came off his, obviously, his, like, first great season. Signs a contract extension. What was it, like, 12 years or something, like, crazy mm-hmm. long like that? Um, I mean, he's played, like, he hasn't even played a full season. And San Diego was good last year, too. They did. They could be a dark horse Machado. in the National League. Machado looks good. I'm going to pick Tatis. I think it's it might be the too obvious of a pick, but it's, I think it's the safest pick to make. Yeah, and here's the thing. Like, like you were saying, is San Diego looked so dangerous last year that that this team is going to be really good this year. And then and then the same thing is probably going to happen this year. They're going to really take that next step. Especially, as I said, Tatis hasn't even played a full year. Yeah. But here we are. He's just he's going to be that next superstar in baseball, and it's kind of hard to, to not pick him. If you don't pick him, who are you picking? If I weren't to pick him, honestly, I can see Acuna winning it. I was going to say the same thing because – Bold prediction, 40-40 club. Newest member. He might. And if he does that, then it's kind of hard not to give him the MVP. Oh, no, yeah. I mean, him and Tatis are going to be in this league for a long time. So if you're Atlanta, obviously, A, lock him down. Hey, they have. And for so cheap. Well, yeah. It's like yeah. $150 million or something yeah. like that. It's robbery. See, and those two, I think they're going to be going head-to-head for this title for a long time. Yeah. I, I th- Honestly, 
I would compare it to the Mike Trout and Bryce Harper comparison. Yeah. Coming into the league right about at the same time, obviously they were the same year. I don't think these two were the same year, but they're both young superstars in their own respect. If he doesn't win it, then it's going to be Acuna. Yeah. It's one of those two for me. I, I like that because I, I really think that he's got a fantastic chance at the 44 club. In spring training, some something you don't take away too much from, he was hitting like 150 with an 847 OPS. Golly. I mean, he was just... When he got on base, he was making the most of it. Yeah, he was. Let's look at the AL side. This is another obvious one. I mean, there's a lot of guys that can make some noise, but, like, is anyone going to beat Mike Trout anytime soon? I don't know, but I I might throw you a little bit of a curveball here. Okay. Jose Ramirez. Okay. Third baseman for the Indians. I mean, he's been one of the most consistent hitting third baseman in the league. He's had 30 home run power. He's got 20 stolen bases. His on-base percentage is over 360 for the past for three out of the last four years. I mean, I really see him doing it, especially with Francisco Lindor not on the Indians anymore. Yeah. He's going to be a guy that they're going to rely on. So Ramirez is definitely a guy that I would look out for. See, and that's a guy I wouldn't really talk about because he's, he's not a superstar. Mm-hmm. He's not some guy that is always posted about. So I like that pick because, hey, all it takes is him to have a really good month and people are going to be talking about him a lot. For me... I'm going to, you know, go with my World Series pick, Tim Anderson. Okay. Let, let's see what he can do this year. I'm picking Mike Trapp to win it, but Dark Horse, Tim Anderson, I wouldn't consider him too much of a Dark Horse, but he's definitely got the power. The issue is who he's competing with. Yeah. Yeah, Jose Abreu. You've got Luis Robert. It's such a, such a young team. Abreu's the experienced guy, and he was in the MVP race last year. Probably should have won it. But I think Anderson this year, because of what's going to be happening on the NL side with Tatis and Acuna, Anderson will be the guy to watch on the AL side. For sure. He's definitely a guy that a lot of people don't think about that has one of been, been one of the more consistent younger guys in the past several years. I wouldn't count him out either. I like that pick as well. Let's look at the Cy Young real quick, and then we're going to move on to Auburn baseball. But Cy Young predictions, because the thing is, it's been pretty consistent over the last few years. I think I know in the American League who I who the two guys I'm going to come down to it are. It's either going to be Garrett Cole or Tyra Glass now. Okay. I like both of those guys. Glass now had a good season. I mean, and obviously Garrett Cole has had a great track record. He's on the Yankees now. I think he's really happy in New York. I think it comes down to one of those two guys. I don't know who I'd, where I'd put my money yet, but it's going to be one of them too. Yeah, I, I'm going to pick Cole just because I think that the Yankees are going to rely on the pitching a lot this year. Because we kind of saw last year what would happen when the pitching didn't go well. I when I think when I think of Garrett Cole, I think of the back to back home runs for Ronald Acuna Jr. and Marcelo Zuna yeah. on him. That we're t- I mean, it was the longest home run of the season I think uh, from Acuna in all of Major League Baseball. So it's just one of those things where that's not his game at all. And I think that Garrett Cole is really going to come out and with a full season and a normal season, he's really going to do his thing and win it. In the National League, you've got a few names to pick here, I would say. You would. I'm probably going to go with Jacob DeGrom. I think he's going to have a great season, and he could become the 10th person uh, in MLB history to win three Cy Young Awards. Wow. I'm going to go with him. I'm going to pick, once again, going with the World Series pick, watch out for Walker Buehler. Yeah, Walker Buehler is a great pick, too. And that you know the biggest thing is, I'm looking at some odds, and DeGrom, Bauer, Scherzer. Like, how do you pick against those three guys? I don't know. But I, I just have a good feeling about Bueller because, you know, when you think of pitchers on Dodgers, you think Clinton Kershaw. It's not 
about him, but I think Bueller can be that guy that really steps up because Kershaw's getting up there in age. Yeah, he is. And I think Bueller can be the guy that steps into that role, that Kershaw is really just being that dominant pitcher. Moving on to Auburn baseball as it hasn't been pretty. 0-6 in SEC play, heading to the number one team in the country, the Arkansas Razorbacks. I mean, let's talk about the last two weeks already. We talked about Ole Miss last week, but this Kentucky series, we said, go get two out of three, and they didn't get one. They've lost six in a row. I mean, you lose... You lose two one-run games in Oxford, and then you lose a, a game by five runs, but you give up 19 runs. So it's like, okay, like we wanted at least one of those, especially one of the one-run games, but you know what? That's a top-five baseball team. You come home against Kentucky, who is a great team, a great offensive team. They're not ranked, but their record was great. They lose in extra innings by two runs, and then they lose another one-run game and another two-run game. So Granted, Auburn has had injuries like we've talked about, especially with the pitching staff, and then still with Judd Ward battling injury and everything that's been going on. They're right there on the brink. I mean, and they're sitting at 500 right now, so Auburn's going to fall below 500 for a while. Yeah, and because here's the thing I think we can go ahead and say we don't expect to get a game no. at Bomb this yeah. weekend because it, it, it's one of those things where, yeah, if they turn it around, they're going to keep this series, they're going to keep these games close, but. Arkansas is just so good. We saw what they did to Mississippi State last weekend. Yeah. Swept them. And Mississippi State is a very good team that comes to Auburn next weekend. Yeah. So I think the biggest thing here is to not get too down on yourself and just keep the games close as you have been. I know how frustrating that can be. Yeah. Because, as you said, five of the six losses have been by two runs or less. And as frustrating as that is, it shows that you're right there. Yeah. You are so close, and you just got to close out games. It's that simple. And you can – I don't really know which side to put the blame on because I read something about how Auburn hasn't scored very many runs in the first five innings of games. I, I think they're last or close to the last in the SEC in that category. And then you look at the pitching, whenever the offense does start scoring runs, the pitching kind of falls apart in the lighter innings. So you can't really put it on either side. It's really a whole put-together product that we haven't really seen. I mean, when I I look at all these wins, I don't really see a win that stands out too much to me other than maybe Texas A&M. That and the only other one would be Boston College because it was a top 25 match. Yeah, and see, another thing about that is when you dominate like that... It doesn't make it look as impressive. Yeah. I mean, I agree. And they should have won that Sunday game after. Yeah, and I think the Lipscomb game was pretty gritty. Well, and to be fair, in regards to Auburn's schedule, like you mentioned, you were looking at it, three teams on Auburn's schedule have already been the number one team in baseball (laughs) at some point this season. And Arkansas is the first number one team that Auburn has played since Florida in 2018. So it's not like Auburn's got some lackadaisical, easy-peasy schedule. Auburn is playing the top talent and top teams in college baseball. And... Me, personally, I think that the offense will be fine. I think it really kind of comes down to, obviously, Jack returning to the starting rotation after injuring his his finger preseason. It'll be the sixth different starting rotation through this season. <laughs> I think getting him back, getting Fitz fully healthy, and getting the bullpen healthy with Skipper, that's going to be kind of the turning point in Auburn season. I mean, somebody said today that um, 
but like this is most confident that like Butch has been all season, like in the starting rotation, which it says a lot because he had a healthy Richard Fitz at the beginning of the season. Yeah, and it, it's one of those things where they're moving Barnett back to the bullpen. So this, the rotation is Cody Greenhill, Jacko, and Joseph Gonzalez. Gonzalez, which I kind of don't understand. Me neither, because of what happened on Sunday. But yeah. I also think Saturday. Yes, Saturday, the third, the third game of the series. Yeah. Give him another chance. I'm okay with that, especially especially after the UAB game. That's I yeah. think that's what they're kind of holding on to. But if Gonzo doesn't do as great this weekend and Fitz is still out with his injury, you might want to look into either putting Barnett back in the Sunday role or Trace Bright. Yeah. Trace has had some good outings, outings this year. Yes, he's been in a slump, has given up a lot of long balls. But maybe Trace has figured that out with Tim Hudson, the pitching coach, can probably put the ball down in the zone a little bit more than what he's used to doing against those long balls. So I really think that now that Auburn has Jack Owen back, still has Bull, Bull being healthy has been a strong piece of Auburn this they, year. Uh, Butch said they're moving his pitch count up. They had him at 75. I think it'll be back up to 90, 95 yeah. again this weekend. So that'll be big, especially if Cody can do a good job against this Arkansas offense. And as you said, Skipper coming back. Hayden Mullins isn't back yet. He will be back for the Mississippi State Series. But I think with Owen being there, Greenhill being there, I think Fitz is on his way and Skipper is on his way. You have a good opportunity this weekend. I'm not going to say they're going to grab a game, but if the opportunity's there, if you're going to the last three innings, you're down two runs, go and get it. That's what you have to do. I think a big thing is also just the fact that, I mean, we were talking about this before we recorded today's podcast. Be ready for Auburn to give up the all-time series record. Auburn, surprisingly, is one game up in this series all time. It's kind of impressive for it baseball impressive. to have it like that. But Auburn's about to go play, like you said, at Baum. I mean, in front of eleven, nearly 11,000. If they've, Have they lifted their COVID restrictions? Uh, I'm not sure. Arkansas might have. It might, it's probably not as big of a deal as Texas or yeah. a state like that. Regardless, one of the better state or one of the more hostile environments to play in a college baseball. So, I don't... As much as I hate to say it, Auburn doesn't win a game this weekend. No, I, mean, I, I agree. and I think Jack might get shelled. Cody Cody won't be strong enough on Friday or Thursday. I mean, I don't really – Butch said it this way, too. He said, this is a team with no weaknesses. They have none. I mean, no. offensively, they're great. Pitching-wise, they're great. I mean, their, bat, their leading batting average is from Casey Optus, who's batting three thirty eight, and a lot of the guys aren't far behind him. So Yeah, it, it's just a very well-rounded ball club that – you really can't pick anything out that you're like, oh, I don't like that as much because it's just that that's what the making of a number one team in the in the country is. And a twenty and three, five and one in the SEC, who went on the road and swept Mississippi State, that's what the making is of it. Yeah. And you know, we'll talk about this. I mean, Tyler Miller. What in the world? Yeah, he okay. Game three against Kentucky on the second game of the doubleheader. His first at-bat where he just battled and battled and battled, and then finally, I don't know if it was like the 11th or the 12th pitch, but he takes it over the player development center in right field, I mean, and you just saw how fired up he was after he rounded first base, and uh, I forgot what the lady's name was, but she was sitting behind me, she was his girlfriend, and she was getting frustrated because he kept getting intentionally walked, and I turned around, and I was like, I know that's frustrating, but like, take that as a it's compliment. A, it is a like, compliment. Your boyfriend is a great hitter, so... Um, yeah, he's he's batting out of his mind. He's still red hot. He's kind of holding this Auburn team together offensively when you look at it from that kind of standpoint. But yeah, and I won't I won't go as far to say that. I just think he's just been so dominant that it seems like that. Yeah. Because he, he I mean, he's batting four twenty. He 
Tyler Miller's 420. I'm reading this from the game notes. 420 batting average is 31 points higher than the SEC's number two qualifying hitter. That means that that qualifying hitter is hitting 389. Good math. And Miller ranks in the top 25 in the NCAA in hits, home runs, RBI, slugging, and total bases. He leads Auburn in batting average, runs with 22, home runs with 8, and 31 RBI. Just because he's a slug slugger doesn't mean he can't glove it either. Oh, no. He's made some fantastic plays at first base. He has. Because he, he really is a third baseman, but you have Rankin Wally, so play him at first base. And it, it's one of those things that... It might be working out for the better. I really think so. Because here's the thing. We haven't really had any issues Auburn yeah. on defense. Yeah. So you really have this... I mean, here's another thing. Auburn also has had a ton of different lineups this year. I think going into the weekend, it was like 16 to 19. And I'm pretty sure they change the lineup every day. So you're at 19 to 22. Yeah. 19 out of 22 lineups this year have been different. The, something else, too, about this series that it's not going to happen but to look out for for the rest of the series, Auburn hasn't won a road series in baseball since 2014, according to Auburn's game notes. Wow. That's seven years. And that's and look, that's not even SEC. Yeah. And not, not say they're going on the road a lot for uh, non-conference. They did it against UCF, but you're right. That's not great. No, it's not. And, and looking ahead in the schedule. So after you come home with Mississippi State, you go on the road to Alabama, which, listen, the way things are trending, that game could decide who goes to Hoover or not. Yeah. And then after that, you welcome Florida home. And then you travel to Georgia, who... Well, don't forget, who, before Florida, you have two tough non-cons at home, Sanford yeah, and Jacksonville uh, State, who are no pushovers. Tuesday and Wednesday, yeah. Casey Dunn has always had Auburn's number. That's a tough five days that week. Which, for Auburn, midweeks haven't been too much of an issue, knock on wood, so far this season. They, they've had a few canceled, but they've gotten wins on the midweeks whenever they needed to. So, if you can be undefeated on midweek games... You go, you go to Georgia Tech on April 13th. Then it gives you a good case as long as you pick something up in SEC play to get into the NCAA tournament. Yeah, I agree. I think Auburn's really got their work cut out for them, not just this series, but like you said, welcoming a Mississippi State team to Auburn, hosting Florida as well. I mean, going on the road to Georgia, hosting LSU, who, hey, LSU might not be that great this year. Either. They got swept by Tennessee. I mean, who knows? But Auburn definitely has a work cut out for them now. They're going to be pushing for that final spot to make it to Hoover. And remember, the year Auburn made it to the College World Series, Auburn wasn't really that great of a team that year either. Yeah. So, I mean, they were a decent team, but they kind of picked up at the right time. I mean, SEC tournament didn't really do that great. They made it to the postseason. Then when they got to the postseason, they took advantage of it. So, Auburn can really improve their resume with this meat of the SEC schedule. It's just whether or not they do it. I think it's more about Auburn not doing what they've done the last two weekends. You yeah. just can't keep getting swept. Now, because you've done it two times in a row, you got to go get a series that you shouldn't have gotten, whether that be Mississippi State, whether that be at Georgia, something like that. you got to get a series that you aren't expected to get so you can really get back in, this, in the mix of things. Right. Auburn travels to Arkansas this weekend to face off against the number one Razorbacks. It's going to do it for Bay and I. On this scoreboard podcast, we're going to release it on Thursday – and we hope everyone has a happy Easter and a happy Wellness Day if you're a student at Auburn University. Thank you for tuning in to The Scoreboard. This has been The Scoreboard a 91.1 FM WEGL with Bay Marks and Jacob Hillman. 
Join us every Thursday at 4 as Jacob and Bay cover all the happenings in sports. You can keep up with all the great shows on Weagle by streaming us on our website at weglfm.com and following us on Twitter and Instagram at wegl underscore au. 